But we are in Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be finishing up chapter 2 today with a letter to the church of Thyatira. Of all the seven churches that in the book of Revelation, this one, Thyatira, is the one that is most like us, most like our current situation that we find in our country and even here within our church. You see, the city of Thyatira, it was located about 40 miles northeast of Pergamum, where the Caucasus and Hermes rivers meet. And it was located in a long, flat valley. So unlike Pergamum, which was built high on a hilltop and an impregnable hilltop, this city was built on the flat ground, and it had no natural defenses. And because of this, historically what we know most about this city usually is conjunction with it being sacked and overrun by an intruding army. And so by this time in history, it was in Roman control. It was a Roman city with a garrison of soldiers stationed there. And their main job being stationed there was to give the city of Pergamum a buffer when and if an invading army came toward it. This city has a lot in common with Oklahoma. The city was not important. It had no natural beauty. It didn't have naturally stunning surroundings. And the Roman nation didn't care too much about this city. There were no beautiful or important temples there. There were no public baths. There were no arenas. There wasn't even a Jewish synagogue located there, which means that there were less than 10 Jewish families living in that city. It wasn't an exciting city. It wasn't a sexy city. It would never have drawn those beautiful people, those people that were looking to live large. And because it wasn't a center of worship to any false gods, the church there, they didn't face the persecution that the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum faced. At least not the same sort of persecution. Those cities, the ones that had the natural beauty, that had beautiful, wonderful buildings, places of worship to those false gods, which drew those important people, the beautiful people, the rich people, their persecution was personal and often painful. But this church didn't have any of that. And for this reason, they weren't persecuted by the religious cults. But this church on this open plain in this forgotten place, it does have the distinction of having the longest letter by the one who this is a revelation of written to it. Even though this church wasn't facing physical persecution by the government or by religious cults, even though it was in an out-of-the-way, a forgotten kind of place, this church did have an issue to deal with, one that was just as serious as an, and important to the Lord. An issue that is similar to an issue that we deal with in our church, in this out-of-the-way, unimportant, and overlooked place. Money. The worship of money and the worship of the Lord. You see, at this time, Thyra Tyra was beginning to boom, but not in white-collar work, but in blue-collar work. Because it was in a major intersection of commerce, both by land and by water, Trade guilds began popping up in it, and, begin, and business started to blossom and bloom. And if you desired to work in leather, or blacksmithing, or pottery, or textiles, you had to become a member of the local trade guild. And to be a member of the local trade guild, you had to swear allegiance and service to the false god that watched over that guild. If you desired to have that good and productive life, to make more than just minimum wage, you had to work in a trade. And to do that, you had to belong to a guild. So the guilds were the ones that were holding the keys to that status and comfortable life that the middle class was beginning to produce. And this is what the church in Thyatira was facing. Saints, it's my desire, it's my hope that by the end of this sermon, that you and I will have a better understanding of the value of our salvation. That we all will understand better why it is important. 
for all of us always to keep on the front of our minds that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ and nothing more. Because if you're like me, those first three letters, the churches to Ephesus, to Smyrna and Pergamum, they've been challenging. So much so that they can actually make us question, am I even saved? Because as we look at what Christ says against our own life, we find ourselves falling way short of what is expected. And this is why we need to understand that this book, this is a revelation, not of us, not about end times. It's not given to us to entertain us. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we rightly understand those letters to these seven churches, they are shocking to our modern Christian ears. And the reason for this is simple. It's not so much that so much is being required of us. It's that we have been so poorly taught and poorly led. We haven't been taught the value of our salvation in Christ. And we have not been taught and prepared to suffer here in this realm in order that we can attain to the prize that we have been promised in Christ. Let me demonstrate just a little bit how this is true. Because every one of us here, we would applaud a person who would make the claim, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. Wouldn't we? But to borrow from our brother, Paul Washer, he says this, he says, it is a grievous thing to say that Jesus is the most important thing in your life. He goes on to say that if you can say that Jesus is your number one goal in life, you have been taught poorly. Because Jesus is never to be intended to be at a head of a list. In fact, he should never even be on a list. He is supposed to be our all in all. He is God and God is not an add-on. Being a Christian is supposed to be the most important thing in your life, not an add-on to describe you. Oh, I'm a banker. A, a Christian banker. Or I'm a carpenter. A Christian carpenter. He is, and he must be, our all in all. And the one who this is a revelation of, the one who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood is told to us in chapter 1, verse 5. He begins this letter, the longest of the seven letters in this manner. He says, this is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. This is who is speaking to us today. That's what he's doing. He's speaking to us. And he's doing so in this letter. And through his spirit, he is the one who has promised things to us. And the thing that he has promised to us is this. In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world, John 16, 33. Saints, stay with me here. That you in John 16, 33, that is a collective you. And this letter is to a church in Thyatira, to a, co a collective group of people. But even though that's a collective you, and even though this is a letter to a church and not to a person, we each need to take this personal. Every Christian is an individual. Every one of us has been saved individually. Christ had each one of us individually on his mind when he released us from our sin by his blood. And Christ knows us all individually. And this has been the reality of the church from Adam moving forward. But even though we are all individuals, even though we are all different from one another, we have all been saved in the same manner. We've all been saved to the same God. We've all been saved by the same pouring out of the same blood. And we are all given the same spirit to the same measure 
and to the same degree as every other believer. And because of this, we are all expected to live just like every other Christian has lived, having one single goal in mind, to hear a single phrase from our Lord and Savior. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25, 23. Saints, isn't this the single thing that we desire to hear when we stand before the Lord, when we see him face to face? And you may be asking yourself as I read that, what does this mean? What is expected of me here? What is, who is, what is a good and faithful slave? We must understand what is expected of us to hear that from him. We must know what the list is, how long that list is. And in the Matthew verses I just read, he said to that good and faithful slave, you were faithful with a few things. This is the reality of the commands of the Lord. We think that what is expected of us is impossible to bear. And rightly so. Because for the false convert, for those that aren't truly saved, they are right. It, what is expected of them is impossible for them to do. Which was the whole point of that parable that Jesus said. But this is not the truth of the redeemed of Christ. Be faithful in a few things. And in fact, those few things is actually just a single thing. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9.23. It's the same single requirement that he made in Luke 14.27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. And you're thinking, okay, David, that may be only one thing, but that one thing terrifies me. Because we are afraid of pain and suffering. And rightly so. You know, I don't know if you understand this or not, but pain is called pain because it hurts. And suffering is called suffering because it's not enjoyable. Pain is painful, and suffering is not fun. And this goes back to the original truth told us by Christ. In this world you have tribulation. But who here, which one of us here have not endured pain and suffering in this world? A broken bone a major illness, or a broken heart. We all endure pain and suffering here. But who is the one who has been our comfort through that pain and suffering? But take courage. I have overcome the world. And just as the truth that we are all individuals and that we have all been individually saved, each one of our crosses are individual as well. You see, the thing is, is that every one of us here, we fear the call to pick up our cross and follow him because we all think that that means I'm going to be martyred. But not all Christians are called to martyrdom. But we are called to be faithful. And we don't understand because we've been poorly taught and poorly led. One way to understand what it looks like to be a good and faithful slave just pick up a book and read a biography of men and women who've died, who've lived and died in serving their Lord. Read about Jonathan Edwards. He didn't die on a cross or in a fire or being stoned, but he did live a good and faithful life. Or read about his wife, Sarah. She didn't go out street preaching. She didn't die on a cross or being stoned, but she, like her husband, she lived a good and faithful life. Saints, do you not understand that just as, not all, just as all of us are not called to be elders or preachers or even deacons, not all of us are called to be martyrs. 
And just as the Lord equips those that he calls as elders and preachers and deacons, he will also equip and prepare and sustain those that he has called to be a martyr. Just as he will, he will equip and prepare you for however he has deemed it best for your life to bring glory to him. As you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. And let's be honest, we find that a grievously hard, unpleasant command. But if you're married, think about this, married people. You do this for your spouse. Parents, if you have children, you know. You do this for your children. How many of us husbands, men, would rather stay in bed instead of getting up and going to work. But we deny ourselves for our family. And we don't understand. In the letter to the saints in the church in Philippi, Paul, there, in that letter, he said that he had lost all that he had, and that all that he had, that he had lost all those things, he, he said they were garbage. So was Paul saying that he had gotten all of his stuff from Walmart that just wasn't that good of stuff? That the car that he had had before, that it was a beater and he lost it? That the life that he had was just trashy, that he had like a trailer trash kind of life before? Is that what he's saying? Not at all. He wasn't devaluing his former life. He is elevating that which had replaced all of those things. Parents, how often, especially if you're a parent of a young child, how often can you long for those good old days before the children came? The freedom, the carelessness of life that you had. But then you think about your kids, and you count the cost, and you think that freedom, that carelessness, that's garbage compared to having my children. And this is what Paul is saying. He is saying, all things in life, all of them are trash when compared to Christ. None of us live for trash. We don't store trash up. We don't go out and spend our hard-earned money to buy trash at the garbage dump. We throw trash away because it has zero value to us. And what Paul is saying is that as good as life is, and he's not saying you don't, aren't to have fun, you aren't to enjoy the blessings and, or ease of life, only that we must see Christ as of so much more value than any in all of these things, to the point that we would actually think of them all as nothing but garbage. And this is why Christ can't be your number one thing in life. He must be your life. And again, we haven't been taught to think of him this way or to live this way. Paul wasn't condemning that church in Philippi. He wasn't telling them not to live or to have a good life. What he was doing is elevating. He was pointing out to them the most important thing in all of the universe. He was saying, see, look at Christ. Taste and see. Because he is what is valuable. He is what is worth living for. And he is what has been given to us. And we have not been taught the benefit of living a cross-bearing life. So what is just one single benefit of living a cross-bearing life? How about the very souls of those people that you are petitioning the Lord to save? Do you not understand that it is your life? Your life is a witness as to the value of the one that you are telling them to come to, to trust in? 
Not your words. It's your life. But more than that, our verses from today, written to this church in that faraway land so long ago, they tell us what the benefit of living a cross-bearing life is. And even what the one who bore his cross for us, what he is requiring of us. So let's begin to unpack what it is our Redeemer, the one who was dead and is alive, what he has to say to us. Beginning in verse 18, he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, This is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet are like burnished bronze, says, Jesus, in the letter to Thyatira, he begins that letter the same manner and the same way he does all the churches. He reaches back to into chapter 1 of Revelation in that description that's there that is given to us there. He reaches back and he pulls out things. To the church in Thyatira, the part of the description that he highlights from chapter 1 is that of his eyes of flaming fire and his feet of burnished bronze. Why? Well, the reason is because of the name that he uses here, the Son of God. Do you remember what his favorite name was? What his favorite way of describing himself? The one that he loved to be known by? That was Son of Man. That term is used over 92 times in the Bible. But here now, he says to this church, he's the Son of God. Why? Well, first, because he is. Isaiah 9.6 tells us, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The demons know who Jesus is. Matthew 8.29, Before he casts the demons who are possessing that man into a herd of pigs, they say to him, What do we have to do with you, son of God? Matthew 8.29. But secondly, those fiery eyes and that burnished bronze feet, the burnished bronze feet, they both speak of why he calls himself the son of God. He's highlighting here one of his attributes, one that many poorly taught Christians are offended by. You see, in the Bible, bronze is the metal that represents judgment. Think of the bronze altar. Think of the bronze snake. Those fiery eyes also speak of judgment. They're meant to under, for us to understand that they are the thing that refine us like gold. Listen how the P- Apostle Peter spoke of those fiery eyes. He said, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 5-7. And the trials that Peter is speaking of, they are not the devil's doing. They are from the Lord, since we know that all things work together for our good, Romans 8.28. And this all ties back in with that Old Testament again. Again, this is a revelation, not of the end times, not of some left-behind scheme, not of anything other than Jesus Christ, who is the same person that is spoken of in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. And there in chapter 10, we're told of a vision being given to Daniel. Yes, the book of Daniel is supposed to be, meant to be read alongside of the book of Revelation. But it has been rightly, or I'm I'm sorry, wrongly understood by this generation, by those who have that left behind theology, and how it's supposed to be read. Because way too much emphasis is placed on the 70th week of Daniel by them, the one that Daniel speaks about in Daniel 9, and not the one who's doing the speaking in Daniel 10. The one that reveals himself to Daniel in chapter 10. He's the one that's coming in judgment. And who in verse 6 and in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 10 are described in the exact same manner as Jesus speaks of himself here in these opening verses. Saints, we are meant to understand that the book of Daniel, that it is also a revelation of Jesus Christ. And to understand that book of Daniel, we must use the vision given him of the one who brings the eternal judgment that will happen at the end of the age, just as the book of Revelation speaks of. The judgment that is spoken of in Daniel chapter 10, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read the pertinent verses there. 
He said, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow and his hair like a pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing out and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, the books were open, and I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I understand. I understand you're thinking, this is the rabbit trail. It's not really even dealing with the body of the letter of Thyatira. But the Son of Man there were given things by the Ancient of Days, who, by the way, is described to be just like the Son of Man for the book of Revelation. Interestingly enough, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if we're ever to understand our life and what is expected of us, we need to understand these things that are given to him. First, he's given a dominion. He's the ultimate authority over all things. The second thing that he's given is glory, which is the same thing that Jesus said to the Father in John 17, 5. And then the third thing that is given is a kingdom, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Understanding what that kingdom is, this is so important to us. The kingdom that is spoken of there is the church. The church is the kingdom that is presented to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And this is understanding, and important in understanding and knowing why you will overcome, why you will stay fast, and what is meant by cross-bearing. And again, I know you're thinking, another rabbit trail, still not getting into the body of the letter of Thyatira. But turn with me to chapter 5 of Revelation. Grab your Bible, turn with me to chapter 5. Because this is of most importance in understanding why we should not fear. Again, chapter 5 of Revelation. Beginning with verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scrolls and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or to look into it. And then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is the same event, the same thing that we just read about from Daniel. In verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy of you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Christ did not shed his blood for all people for all time. He purchased a people for God with his precious blood. And who are these people? How special are you? Look at verse 10. 
and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. That wording in verse 10 is precise, and it's precisely as I just read it. In the original language, it is stated just like that. He did not make us into a kingdom of priests to our God. He made us into a kingdom, comma, priest to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. This is who we are. This is what he has accomplished. Are you getting this? Don't you understand us remaining faithful, us being steadfast to the end, that's not dependent on us. None of this is within us, outside of Him. And you know that's to be true, which is why these letters terrify us so much. Because we look at ourselves and we know that in the face of adversity, in the face of persecution or trials, I'm going to tuck tail and run. But, and this is a huge but, but it is simply because of the one who has purchased you. That one who was given a kingdom. Because of him, in him, you will stand. David, are you sure that we are that kingdom? Are you sure? John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and no one, I'm sorry, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. It's the same thing that he says of the kingdom in John 10, 29 and 30. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one who is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Saints, your standing is not in question. The question that you should be asking yourself is this. It's the thing that Paul emphasized. Are you living for the one who is holding you fast? Do you esteem him of being the greatest value, of the most value? Does the fact that he has made you to be part of his kingdom, that he will hold you fast, does that have any value at all to you? Because if it does, if there's any value in that at all, then he has given you ears to hear. And you will repent, and you will stand, and you will overcome, and you will conquer. Not because of you, but because you are his kingdom. You'll stand in him because of him and through him. And this is the one in verse 19 of Revelation 2 that says to the church in Thyatira, I know your deeds and your love, and your faith, and your service, and your perseverance, and that your last deeds are greater than the first. He knows, and, and he's judging here. As Kevin told us a couple weeks ago, he's judging rightly. He knows this church, and he, value, and he knows that they value him, and that they're living for him, that they're out evangelizing, that they're being bold in their witness. And then, as he's done before, he does once again. And this is the hard part for us. Again, like Kevin said, we like when people judge favorably of us, but it's when they judge us with a critical eye that we take exception to that. He says in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and deceives my slaves so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she doesn't wish to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, or a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. 
And by the way, this is the exact same thing that is said of God in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 10. I, Yahweh, I search the heart, I test the inmost being, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So I guess so much, so, so much for that whole, the God of the Old Testament is mean and hard and ugly. And the God of the New Testament, he's soft and lovey. They both judge. And we don't understand these verses. These verses, like verse 13 of chapter 2, they are the ones who have those, that, that left-behind theology. They are the ones that captivate them. Ask yourself if this is not true. How much emphasis has been placed on who this is a revelation of by them? Those left-behind series, how much of that actually had to deal with Christ? compared to the things that he says? How much ink has been spilled by them concerning what is meant by Satan's throne, where he lives, by this woman Jezebel? What's meant by that? By the judgment on our children? How much are these things emphasized instead of the one who this is a revelation of? But we are to understand who this Jezebel is. And what is the reference being made to here? Remember, this church wasn't being locked up or physically hurt. Their persecution, that came in the form of not being able to participate in the wealth that was happening through those work guilds. And this Jezebel, who was more than likely a real woman, just like Antipas was a real man, she stood up and did what the Jezebel of the Old Testament did. She took charge where she shouldn't have. And she said... It's okay to compromise on the word and worship of God. The original Jezebel, her account is told to us in 1 Kings 16. And just like there, this Jezebel brought compromise and synchronicity in with the worship of God. And saints, when God speaks of worship, he doesn't mean just what is happening here in this building now. How you live your life, that is primarily your worship to the Lord. Romans 12.1 tells us, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So don't think that you can separate your, or categorize your life into compartments or categories. Think that how I live my life and what I do Monday through Saturday, that has, that has no bearing on what happens here on Sunday. Jesus speaks to that as well in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. To the religious Jews, he said, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people, they honor me with their lips, which so often is exactly what ends up happening in church services. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commands of men. And also, that Greek word that is translated as sexual immorality here is used later in the book of Revelation, not just to mean a physical act that is contrary to the word of God, but a spiritual one. We need to understand this from these seven letters, that although every one of them is speaking to a specific situation, these events were actually occurring. They're not exclusive to that church or just to that location. Just as Satan didn't actually have a throne in Pergamum, nor was his home there, he didn't live there, the same is true for Jezebel here. There was a Jezebel there, but he's talking to all the churches. God is using these situations and these circumstances in both of these churches as a safeguard and a warning to allow to understand that this type of heresy, allowing this type of heresy into his church, will not be tolerated. And what this woman did is she stood up in this church and she had been elevated to a position in the church to the degree that she held sway over at least part of it. She first was taking upon herself a mantle that she should never have. One that in our day and age is once again being grasped at by modern day Jezebels. Those that say that women can be elders or pastors. And because she was able to play fast and loose with the word of God in that area, it was no stretch of the imagination for her to begin to tell others 
it's okay for you to join that guild. I know you're going to have to sacrifice to that false god, but you don't mean it. When you walk past, you know, that altar and you throw that incense on there and you say that our Lord, you don't really mean that. That's okay. No big deal. God knows. He doesn't mind. He knows that that job's going to be a better living for your family. He knows that you'll get better stuff because of it. And he's okay with that. The warning given by the Lord, not only to that women or to women who will go against his word, but also those that would follow along with them, that's frightening. Listen to verses 22 and 23 again. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give each one of you according to your deeds. We need to understand that the warning given to this church is given to the entire church, all the church. But at the same time, as God is speaking to the entire church of Thyatira, at the same time, he knows whose are his there. The opening warning of verse 20, but I have this against you. That is a specific you. It's specific even though it is, it is for the entire church. That you is just like the for those who have ears to hear. I've said before that that phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the church says or what God says to the church, is meant for three groups of people within. And to this group, the ones that the specific you is meant for, the word will stand as a prosecuting attorney and even the judge and the jury against them since they claim to be of Christ, since they claim to have ears to hear and they're unwilling to obey. But then God moves on to the primary group of people that this phrase is for. To them, they are then spoken of beginning in verses 24 through 29. He says, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not have this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. The heresy that Jesus is speaking of here, what he calls what is said, the deep things of Satan, that's what has been known, what has been deemed as Gnosticism. What they were saying, this group of people was saying, I'm of Christ, but I've got special knowledge. I understand how Scripture is supposed to be interpreted, even though it's not clear. God has told me specific things. And those things that God told them were always outside of the Word of God. They would add to the Word of God, or they would take from the Word of God. In our day and age, think Todd White, Benny Hinn, Joyce Myers, Bethel Worship, and I would also add to that list those that claim that this is a revelation of anything less or more than a revelation of Jesus Christ. And even those that claim that women can hold the office of elder, those that have that special left-behind kind of knowledge. But to those who have been given an ear to hear, the one who has given them that ear, he says to you, he places no other burden on you. So again, that begs the question, what burden has he placed on you? Do you know what that burden is personally? Can you define it? Well, you should be able to. In fact, you must be able to. And you might be able to know what it is by how he describes it to us. Burden. What in your life do you consider a burden? Well, if you're a mom, a stay-at-home mom, that can seem like a burden. Being a good wife, that can seem like a burden. Being a good mom and a good wife, that's most certainly a burden. And this is how you are to be faithful with a few things. 
If you're an employee, how often can your work be a burden? And as an employee, you're to be a good and hard-working, faithful employee. And that's how you're faithful with a few things. But, and, and this I must emphasize, but this goes back to what I've been emphasizing all along. It is only when you do these things because you esteem Christ above all else. It's then that you are picking up your cross and denying yourself and following him. Because if you're doing those things for your husband or for your kids or for your boss or even for yourself, you're not being a good and faithful slave because you're, you are placing yourself on that cross and you're playing a martyr instead of relying on the one who was martyred for you. And what we are doing here today, saints, what we do here every week is what we have been given to worship God and God alone, to guard our hearts and His church from false gods and from synchronicity of any other type of worship that is not given to us in Scripture, to be dogmatic about sola scriptura concerning our Lord and our worship of Him. This is what is required of us to hear Him say that phrase, well done, good and faithful slave. So this then brings us to verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. This is what we have. This is what the church in Thyatira had. They had the word. And we must hold fast to it. And the reason we must hold fast to it is given to us in verses 26 through 29. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule with them with a rod of iron and a vessel of the potter are broken to pieces. All, as I also have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Saints, what is promised to us in, in verses 28 and 29 is drawn directly from an Old Testament passage, one that Jesus has already drawn from earlier from our verses today. In verse 28, Jesus promises to give us the morning star. What is that? Well, listen to Psalm 2 and see if you can grasp what, is, what that is and what is being promised to us. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And this is the reality of the world that we live in. It and the people of the world, they hate God. What's his reaction? Verse 4, he, he who sits on the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten, to you, begotten you. Verse 18, Jesus said that he's the son of God. The same thing that he just said here. This is where he pulled that from. Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. What's his inheritance? What has been given to him? It's you. It's me. It's a people. And then the father says to the son, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. That's the exact same thing that Jesus promises to those that just hold fast until he comes. So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, of, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Still not sure what that morning star is? What it is that we've been given? 
one verse, Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Saints, do you not see? Christ, he was given a kingdom, which is the church. We are his kingdom. And the kingdom that has been given, the kingdom that he says will break them with a rod of iron, that we shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. And what is it that he promises to the kingdom that he's already been given? He promises that which has already been given to us. Him. And this is why. And this is how we can be sure we will conquer. Because we will conquer through the morning star. Not because of us. Not because of our efforts. Because he's already conquered. And we are in him. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. And this is why we should give ourselves over to this love. Why we should love Him, in Him and through Him, with reckless abandon. Because saints, as you do this, the more that you do this, the more that you give yourself over to Him, you're going to discover new depths of his love as you swim deeper and deeper in the ocean that is his love. And it's then that you will worry less about overcoming as you bask in the love that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.